0: Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Dr. J. Drew Lanham is an author, ornithologist, and professor of wildlife ecology at Clemson University. His research focuses on songbird ecology as well as the African American role in natural resources conservation. He's also a widely published author and award nominated poet. His 2016 book, The Home Place Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature, describes his upbringing in South Carolina, his family history, And his lifelong affinity for nature. He writes In me, there is the red of miry clay, the brown of spring floods, the gold of ripening tobacco. I am, in the deepest sense, colored. We discussed Drew's rural upbringing, his family, his professional life, identity, birding while hunting, and his interpretation of the land ethic. I really enjoyed hearing his perspective through the book and through this conversation. We did have a bit of an audio lag, which I've tried to minimize in the editing, just uh, part of the growing pains of producing this thing and doing lots of remote interviews, but I think we had a really good discussion, and uh, if you're interested in Dr. Lanham's work, check out his books The Home Place, as I mentioned, and his latest, Sparrow Envy, A Field Guide to Birds and Lesser Beasts. Thanks. All right. I'm joined by J. Drew Lanham, Dr. Lanham, the author of um, several books now, but uh, one that I most recently read, The Home Place. Drew, how are you?
1: I'm doing well, Dylan. How about you?
0: I'm awesome. I'm really excited to be speaking with you. I, uh, I was listening to a podcast with the, the Back, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers podcast, and your name came up in a conversation about people who are really carrying the land ethic set forward by Leopold. And I immediately went and bought your book and um, (laughs) I have a, I have a confession. I read a few chapters of the hard copy and then I, in my research, I watched a video of you and I decided to go download the audio book instead because I feel like your voice (laughs) is so important to this story. And, uh, I usually wouldn't recommend listening to the audiobook over reading the book but uh, that's what I did and I really enjoyed it
1: I appreciated that believe it or not Dylan when I did the audiobook uh, two years after the book was published it was the first time that I had read the book through so <laughs> that was <laughs> it was something else and a, a couple of times the um, the editor there this wonderful engineer and editor would stop me because for example, you came across the word H O L L O W. And I said, holler. And he said, no, I'm going to need you to go back and read that. That's hollow. <laughs> I said, no, it's holler. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I think it's important, um, to, for folks to get their voice out.
0: Yeah. It really lent, um, a lot of sort of gravitas and weight to the story.
1: Again, I appreciate you reading the story. I appreciate you listening to the story. Because after all, it's all about, ultimately, um, as writers, I think most of us, especially sort of in this, I guess we'd call it this nature writing genre, we'd we'd want to be able to sit around a fire, or a hearth, or a dinner table, or at a bar, (laughs) um and and to tell the stories of our lives in nature. And so that's what I tried to do. So I appreciate, I appreciate you reading and listening.
0: Yeah, um, let's, so I do wanna encourage everyone to, to read the book or, or listen, but um, without giving too much away, can we talk a little bit about your background and your upbringing and how you developed this affinity for nature um, there in Edgefield, South Carolina?
1: Yeah, it's uh, you know Edgefield is I mean somewhere in the dictionary definition of rural there's probably a reference to Edgefield County or at least when I was growing up in it because I was our farm this family farm that has probably been in the family since the the early 1900s the early 20th century is nestled in the middle of the National Forest, the Long Cane Ranger District of the Sumter National Forest. So, you know, there's that, there's that, that nature really. But I I tell folks, you know, nature, nurture, you know, what's sort of hardwired in us versus what's um, instilled in us by learning. I mean, that all sort of blended for me because the environment there was so, was so rural um, there was there was so much outdoors that it was easier to be out than to be in. And and that ease of of being outside all the time, of traveling back and forth between my my parents' house, the ranch, which was relatively modern and air conditioned, fully fully wired and, and plumbed was very different than my grandmother's ramshackle, where I slept uh, most nights, spent about half of my time with her. That house was, it was mostly wired. Um, it'd be scary to for anybody dealing with code to look at it because I'm sure it was up to no one's code, except <laughs> whether it worked when the switches were flipped. Um, it was plumbed. It was somewhat insulated in places but again, it was this house that was a throwback to the, I don't know, the twenties or thirties. I, I suppose I think my grandmother and, and grandfather built it not long after they were married, and it it, it was it was for me um, a pivotal place because between my parents' ranch and my grandmother's ramshackle was maybe you know, as a kid, it seemed like miles of a dirt road, but really it was probably about a a quarter of a mile of of a dirt road that, that, that went around a little bend up a hill, then the hill crested, and then it went down the hill to my parents' house. And I, I like to think it that every day as I walk that route, I would have to change from a ramshackle kid to a ranch kid. And that happened at the top of this hill. So, but You know, in that in that walk, Dylan, on a daily basis, you know, I would hear foxes bark. I would hear turkeys gobble in the springtime. I would hear barred owls hooting from the bottom line. Um, I I would I would flush at least two covey of Bob White every time I walk that road. Um, I would look up and see red tailed hawks and vultures, what we used to call buzzards soaring. Um, just all sorts of birds were were, were flitting and flying and singing and, and doing their thing. And then there were the puddles, which were irresistible. And the puddles uh, in the springtime had tadpoles in them. And I would imagine that these ditches that sometimes ran full of water would magically have fish. And so, <laughs> you know, it, it was that kind of upbringing, that kind of surrounding. And then to have parents... Both of my parents were science teachers and farmers. We depended on the land for food; it was our sustenance. Um, Water—our water came from from springs um, on the that emerged out of the side of a hill, and that my father had rigged cisterns to catch that water, which was then pumped through this very rudimentary system to both houses. Uh, you know, so. I mean, it was the air that I breathed. It was the water that I drank. It was the food that I ate. It was the ground that I walked on. And it was daily teachings from my grandmother and my parents. You know, and I have, I have siblings, I have three siblings and, um, you know, uh, we, we played together from time to time, but most of my playmates were, were imaginary or, had wings and feathers and fins and fur. So it was uh, sort of a magical, um, really idyllic kind of upbringing that I had in that very rural place.
0: Yeah, and I love how throughout the book you talk about in your life being kind of torn between worlds, between the ranch and the ramshackle, between the... that you find out in nature to the kind of fire and brimstone and um, superstitious uh, religion coming from, um, in that case, coming from your grandmother, Mamatha, has that alleviated throughout your life or do you still feel that you're pulled between two worlds?
1: Well, you know, I think I'll always be uh, a creature, an edge creature, certainly, you know, that's um, You know, as a deer hunter, that's where you want to be. You want to be on the edge. As a bird watcher, you Liminal. want to be Yeah, that there you go. Um, it, it's it, but but not not just spatially, but temporally as well. So I'm you know I always tell folks I'm I'm crepuscular as much as anything. <laughs> so, but from this this point of view of being pulled into maybe maybe not just two worlds, but three or four or a half a dozen um from, from an identity standpoint is kind of what I've grown used to. I'm I'm not so sure that I would it, it would be odd to just um, have sort of the 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 one someone role um, but then I I think all of these roles are me you know the the, the, the country boy, the college professor, the bird watcher, uh, um, you know, the poet, the writer, um, the speaker, um, the southerner, the black man, you know, all, all of those things. Uh, and then there are all these roles that come with that, that, that I play on a daily basis that I am on a daily basis. And so, it's, it's sort of like a, a gyroscope and, and the the gyroscope needs to to be in motion to, to retain some sort of balance. Mm -hmm. And, and I feel, I don't know, I feel gyroscopic (laughs) Um, more than not.
0: Yeah. I, I can understand that. And I think all of those different roles that you do play really make it such a relatable read even for people with a very different life experience than you. There's so much in there that you can, you can latch on and, and really understand about um, about your experience, about, you know, being a kid who people are telling you what you should study, where you should go to school. And you're the whole time still drawn to these, these birds and, this landscape. Uh, tell me about the the decision to commit your life to the natural world.
1: Well, it, you know, I, I think I was um, <laughs> I think I was sort of you know to, to pardon the 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 pun, but I guess I'll I'll carry the metaphor at least forward. I think I was baptized in it. You know, <laughs> it, it growing up like that it's, you have to try hard to not be of it. Um, and, and so you really have to work against it and there have to be strong forces, um, to take nature out of you. You can take, you can take someone away from nature, but it's, I would argue that it's, it's hardest to take it out of them. And so, you know, for me, this, um, you know this mission that, that I call it now to try to connect um, conservation and culture, but to try to to get folks to see themselves in nature and their role in it. You know it. it um, again, it's it's sort of this thing that I, I think I I prepared a good portion of my life for. Now, other people had other ideas because they they didn't necessarily see the value in in my dreams because most people didn't know what an ornithologist was um they they saw nature study as something that you either did outside and, and many folks saw it as something that a black kid didn't do or that a black man wouldn't find um a living in so I've always been one, even if quietly at first, um, to, to ask questions, you know, I, I, I remember, I can remember those long, long, long first Sunday, a sitting in church and, and wanting to be anywhere, but there and, and sort of immersing myself in this picture that this one picture that I remember in particular on this church fan of this church this little white church in the woods surrounded by this riot of fall color. And I, I, I didn't want to be in that little church. I wanted to be outside of it in, the, in all those leaves. So, um, so from that point of view, I, I was seeing my worship place outside of four walls. I was seeing my personage being most fulfilled, most edified outside. And outside was where I got to make choices. Outside was where I got to run as fast as I could without anybody saying slow down. Outside was where I got to try to fly and always failed, but I, I got to try again um, and again and again. and And so, you know, that builds a certain constitution in a person, Dylan, to, to persist, because you remember that I can remember those feelings of freedom. I can remember those feelings of being able to decide, okay, today, do I want to go this way or do I want to go that way? Um, you know, do I, do I want to, do I want to stare into this puddle for the next three hours or do or do I want to throw rocks? <laughs> you know, um, so all of that stuff—good options. You know, I mean, it's it's all of that is it's it's not just muscle memory; it's spiritual memory. It's it's what edifies you.
0: Yeah, uh, I can certainly appreciate that pull uh, toward the natural world and away from the the stuffy environment of um i grew up also you know with with a similar situation you know wanting being sitting in catholic church and wanted to be somewhere else wanted to spend my time outside and finding the kind of solace that i was supposed to be finding in the church um finding it under a tree and so uh another part of your book that i that really resonated with me um you talk about some of the words you describe yourself as in your academic career you you describe yourself as a hoop jumper just kind of focusing on one hoop the next hoop and kind of ending up in this place where you really didn't have a plan uh you say and you also called you also described I love this part described the enjoyment of becoming a bubba biologist uh who you previously weren't so fond of this, uh of these folks on the other side of campus who seem to be a little bit rough around the edges and maybe uh were practicing science a little bit differently. Can you tell me about um those ideas about your hoop jumping and your your becoming a more pragmatic scientist, a Bubba biologist, as you call it?
1: <laughs> yeah. It it um you know the I've, I've always been good. I, I was saying before that I was I've always asked questions, but even though I've always questioned things I've frequently, I mostly have followed sort of the path that has been prescribed or, or that somebody pointed out and said, follow that. And so I, I did that for a lot of years. And on those pads, they're you know, just hoops that you would jump through. I mean, the ones that we all jump through of 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 going to school. You know, um trying to get good grades, behaving yourself, mostly, um, staying out of trouble, you know, those kinds of, of hoops. I, I jumped through and lived up to the expectations of others for a very long time. I mean, it's a linear process of hoop jumping, right? Um, you, you, you see a hoop, you jump through the hoop, you go to the next hoop and, um, the thing about hoops is it's okay if you set them up and you decide you're gonna jump through those hoops, you can create your own hoop course. But when others are holding the hoop, mm-hmm. um, they can raise or lower it. Um, they can offer carrots that sometimes aren't so good on the other side for you, or they can hold sticks to whip you through them. So, um, but I was good at it. Um, the thing was that I wasn't setting up my own hoops. And and when I finally questioned those hoops, the day that I did, it was again. I you know I think about it as a rebirth. I think about <laughs> I think about it again to sort of carry the the uh, I guess the Christian metaphor forward. I you know I was saved um, from the expectations of others, and 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 became. Um, you know, got on this route to to becoming a, a zoologist and eventually a wildlife ecologist. Um, so, so that was that was the hoops jumping that was really sort of easy for me. I, I always tell people that I think that had I been um, in the military, I, I think I would have done well because I've I've always followed orders and and carried things out. Um, to a T, to to fulfill some mission. But then the challenge of developing your own mission is something that's, that's, that's different, right? Because you have to, you can't just set up your own hoops. You've got to design the hoops. You've got to think about how big you want them to be, whether they're going to be round hoops or um, or other shapes whether they're going to roll across the ground and you've got to become an acrobat to to dive through them or or those kinds of things so um, but I like that you know once I, I had the opportunity to set my own hoops up I had decisions to make so you know being um, a zoologist and then deciding to become a wildlife ecologist meant that I, I went from this sort of kind of stayed uh in, in some ways, kind of a, a, a white coat um, lab laboratory scientist um, and someone thinking about nature in in sort of these experimental ways um, that are, are, are that may be more smoothly defined to going into wildlife ecology, where <laughs> where you 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 got to go out and and literally sometimes grab life by the ears or the antlers or, um, or the legs or, or, or whatever you can get a hold of. And, and this art of, of defining uh, wildness, of, of being a part of that, to me is, is part of what being a, a bubba biologist is. It's no less scientific than the zoologist but is dealing with all of the variation out there that won't let models um define what's going on that you know every time you go out there um there's this 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 unpredictability that that pulls you um but also makes the job very hard um to do so you know again I'm able to say I've been in both worlds and still sometimes straddle both those worlds of, you know, of someone who who's trained um, in zoology with two degrees. And then my, my PhD is in forest wildlife ecology. So here I am sort of this, 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 this hybrid. (laughs) And I, you know, I take pride in that. I, I can have conversations with, with people, in either camp, but then part of what I'm trying to do, Dylan, is set some new paths to to break to set up some new hoops for myself um to jump through to not just challenge me, but hopefully move both of those those fields forward in a in a more in a more progressive and and colorful
0: way. I I think about it kind of like developing an action bias in, and it's one of the reasons I do what I do as a landscape architect, because I get to, I get to make decisions and take actions and see the effect of, of our hand on the landscape, which is much more attractive to me than studying um, nature in a vacuum, you know, in a, in a lab and in a sort of more hermetic space. Um, So that makes sense to me as well. I I do want to ask you, in your years now, you've been a professor for quite some time at Clemson. You've been an ornithologist and you've you've been around. Uh, What have you, how has the field of ornithology or maybe just um, wildlife ecology, what kind of changes have you seen in your time?
1: Well, it's, people used to, (laughs) the saying used to be, oh, it's not rocket science. Well, now it is. (laughs) <laughs> you know, um, you know the technology um, from satellite telemetry and being able to 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 track things that way to the imagery GIS, for example. That's just revolutionized our abilities to to see the world um, and layer it right. And and there's something on the one hand that's very Appealing as as a reductionist, as someone who likes to pull things apart to understand them, to be able to look at one layer and then the next layer and then the next layer and then the next layer from from the soils on up. But then um, sometimes it's it's frustrating that as technologically adept as the field has become, that I, I think the most critical side one of the most critical sides of what we do, which is dealing with the human animal gets short shrift. And, and so even on the the maps, you know, that as you look at layers and I've watched people who know way more than I'll ever know about different creatures. um, They lay out maps layer after layer after layer, after layer that'll tell you, give you, give you habitat. Um, qualities that will tell you where this creature is likely to move in a given season and a given condition and they so frequently leave out the layer that says oh but this creature is also likely to encourage these people in these neighborhoods or these communities and and it's not a consideration yeah it's it's as if people don't exist as if we don't exist on the landscape um, and interact as, as, as not just human beings, but as fellow animals. So I'm disappointed when the human layers are left out. And I'm especially disappointed when the different human layers of people, those non-white folks that often aren't asked, um, they're left out. So, you know, that's, that's part of what the technological side of it has changed so rapidly um, that it, it really boggles the mind. But then the aspect of us really thinking about humanity, yeah, it's changing and it's getting better, but I don't think it's changed as rapidly as our desire to put nanotags and geolocators on creatures has changed. And part of that is our distance from one another, not during, during, just during a pandemic time where we had to distance but that we lost the ability and we devalue Dylan telling stories, sitting around the fire, sitting next to the hearth or around a table or at a bar and winding a story to somebody and having them listen. Mm. You know, I, I, it's, it's funny, I've watched people pass by one another, people that I know pass by one another or pass by them myself and maybe you spoke or maybe you didn't. But then 30 seconds later, you're getting a text and they're wanting to have a conversation by text when we could have had this conversation face to face. And yeah. I, you know, it makes me sound old, <laughs> but, um, I don't dig that. Right. I, I think, I think that's part of, of technology. That's quite frankly, that's tearing us apart. Um, that's, that's, that's disconnecting us, not just from one another, but also disconnecting us from, from nature.
0: Yeah. You, you jogged a couple of thoughts there um, on the mapping aspect of things. I'm constantly reminded that mapping is, it's a tool and it is often inadequate for, an entire picture of, um, for for instance, ecology, in um, in my field, you know, we you may have heard of Ian Macargue came along and and yeah, and um, introduced that sort of layered, you know, early stage GIS mapping, and it's an incredibly powerful tool for for analyzing landscapes and and wildlife and ecology, but as you say, it is a curated image of what what you want to see it's never the full story no map tells everything because you're selectively leaving things off and what i what i love about leopold to, to kind of bring it back to the land ethic is that he he can't ignore the human's presence within the biotic community and he urges everyone else not to as well um not so much with mapping in his case with beautiful language but you know, that's one of the things that really drew me to his work is that, um, I don't want to think about wildness or nature as separate from myself, just the same as I don't want to remove myself from the food chain, um, which is the reason I hunt. And probably I, Mm -hmm. from, from reading your work, I think you may feel similarly. Um, Mm -hmm. and then I do want to ask you, um, now, you discovered Leopold, you describe discovering the book. I'm holding up a copy of, of probably the illustration that uh, you were drawn to with the geese on the front cover. Um, As a kid, you read that book, a sand County almanac revisiting it now. I don't know when the last time is you read Leopold, but um, how do you interpret the land ethic now with, with all of your experience?
1: Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly pulling out um, my copy of Sand County and, and revisiting it, um, sometimes just a random page or two that, uh, that the book falls open to or that my finger finds, and I just read it. So I'm constantly in and out of it. I, you know, I think that, that part of what impresses me so much, when I was a kid, yeah, the geese um, on the cover pulled me in. But, but then once I got in there, I was able to relate to a good bit of what Leopold said. I mean, the incredible thing was here was a book that it expressed um, a life lived over of a Midwestern landscape, a Southwestern landscape, um, a Mexican landscape, and, and, and not landscapes that I was familiar with as a, as a child but that I knew I wanted to become familiar with. So there was a, there was already some built in empathy with, with this, this sort of, this, this rural sort of poetry, this um, pastoral kind of of poetic um, that, that pulled me in. And, and so that enabled me to see myself in this book as a as a young, as a child, as a young man. Now, what I marvel at with the book is still the writing, um, just the beauty of it, um, the the absolute. What I consider um, just the the way that that Leopold had of, of of turning these these many many phrases that we all remember, um, but then his prescience, um, understanding his life. I can't read a Sand County almanac now in this vacuum that's outside of, or that that excludes his life. And so understanding how he evolved from the, the, the shooting of that wolf um, and watching that fierce green fire dying to decades later, thinking like a mountain, that that evolution that took decades um, is hopeful, right? Um, that we can all change for the better. That we can, you know, take this this route of of jumping through hoops um, to to become larger than we were. And 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 in that way, when I think about that evolution, and I think about how relevant. So many of his words still are. That's the difference I see now, as um, as a as a middle-aged man, um, and as a middle-aged black man. That so much of what this midwestern middle-aged white man wrote, I can take and use in my life, and um, and and that's important. Um, you know, not that Leopold was perfect or without his own faults as a human being um, probable prejudices or, or whatever it was that, that he may have had, that I can look at him in this analysis, as we sort of post hoc folks, I can look at him and say, you know, uh, it's what was different about Leopold was that he didn't choose to as much to be a man of his time as he allowed himself to become a man ahead of his time. And, 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 and that, to me, is the genius of a Sand County al- Almanac, mm-hmm. that we can take that book and that we can find more useful in it than not. And that in, in, and it's not that everything in it, and that or that Leopold intended, as he says, um, things to be unchanged. He didn't write it as any sort of gospel, according to Aldo but but he wrote it um, as he saw life but then also i think with some cognizance of of sort of the bases for our being in nature and that it was something that could live and grow with the reader so that's what i marvel at you know and that's that's as a writer you know that you're writing lives decades beyond you um, and that it is that it is as useful in those decades beyond your living as it was when you wrote it or when it was published that's um, that's an that's an aspiration that I know many of us have but easier 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 read than done (laughs) right Um, so that, that's how it's, it's changed for me, Dylan, just the, the, the usefulness of the book um, and the timelessness of, of Leopold's writings. Those really appeal to me.
0: Yeah, I think anytime there's a great work like that, whether in science or art, I think of it like, like it's an assembly line. And everyone, we've got this complex puzzle. And everyone's, you know, maybe solving one piece at a time. And then Leopold comes along and fills in 10 pieces and passes it on <laughs> to the next people. And they're like, oh, my gosh, you just, you know, um, put it all together for us. And and that's <laughs> what it did for me. It kind of came into my life at a time when I really needed to hear it. And I love one thing that always sticks with me is the way that he focuses on on cycles and seasonality and not just describing a snapshot of this landscape but um the the processes and the choices that these animals are making and um you know that's one thing that i've i've learned to try to look for in nature rather than understanding what's happening now understanding um the larger you know the larger picture um let's talk about your books clearly um leopold was an influence i'm sure that you've got a million influences, um, the home place memoirs of a colored man's love affair with nature, the title there. Um, tell me about the decision to use the word colored because I know it was very intentional. Yeah. Great
1: question. Um, and, and, and not one without some intended, you know, provocation on my part. Um, admittedly, but a question that um, that I I sort of hope people ask, but you know, it comes in part um, from um, what my my parents uh, grew up with. I mean, they grew up being called out of their names, obviously, um, many derogatory names by by racists and and people who didn't respect them. Um, so part of it is in deference to. Um, to, to them and, and my grandmother and the time that she came up in, but then, um, even for me, you know, I talked about being a creature of the edges and I was the first generation of black children born into, um, that wasn't born in, in, or the last rather, I guess I should say that was born in a segregated unit. I was born in a colored unit of, um, of university hospital um, in Augusta. So my birth certificate says colored um, and it it said that I was in the colored unit. So, you know, so that, that tells you something that in 1965, which is 56 years ago that that in 1965 enough had not changed so that people were, we're segregating babies at birth uh, and people were seeing my life is not mattering as much as a white baby's life. So, you know, that's, that's a large part of the reason that I use it. It's that direct legacy, but then I want people to understand the complexity of identity. Um, I want them to understand that I'm proudly, a black man, you know, the my my DNA analysis says that I'm roughly eighty uh, percent, roughly eighty percent Central and West African, but then there there are these other pieces of me, as I say in the book, uh, um, you know, the the Brit, the 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 Irish, the 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 smidgen of Scandinavian, the 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 tiny bit of of Native American, things like um, Southeast asian and iberian all of those things i you know what i want to know where they came from It, it makes me when i look at my genetic map as we're talking about maps it makes me a world traveler without taking a step that that those people who made me good or bad have been global and and so that's colored and, and I'm colored by the soil. I'm colored by the clay, by the sand, by, um, you know, by, by the, that tobacco drying in summer's last breath. I'm, I'm colored by these, these Brown River shoals. I'm, I'm colored uh, by the sky above me. I'm, I'm colored by the earth below me. I'm colored by the birds that fly by me. Um, all of those things make me, me. And so I refuse to disown the, all of that beauty, all of that history. Um, and I need to understand the good and the bad of it so I can do better. So all of that to me, I wanted the complexity of it to come forward
0: in that word colored. Okay. Yeah. And it fits with, in the book, you, you sometimes, um, Obviously in your affinity for birds, talk about the way that, you know, you feel, you feel colored, uh, in, in your own plumage. And, um, we know how your attempts at flying ended up, but (laughs) tell me about, uh, so I read the home place. We've talked a little bit about that. People just need to read that book. Um, it's, I don't want to spoil too much, but fantastic. Uh, my favorite book of the year. And I know it didn't come out this year, but I just read it. (laughs) Um, You did just release a new book called Sparrow Envy, a field guide to birds and lesser beasts, which is a collection of poems, right? I haven't read that one yet.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's um it's you know there was a so I'm you know I'm showing you that the cover that uh, my my uh, editor um, friend at at uh Hub City Books in Spartanburg did, but it's um I call it a field guide to birds and lesser beasts, but I also like to refer to it, Dylan, as a feel guide, F E E L guide, because what I try to do with my poetry is to provide some sort of guidance to people through nature, through my prisms. And those prisms that I have as a Southerner, as a Black man, as a wildlife ecologist, as an ornithologist, um, as a bird watcher. Um, all of those things I try to bring forward in this in this book, um, and so it's got field marks, it's got lists, it's got its own glossary, um, it's it's got all of, all of that in it, and um, you know I I try to bring forward in it um, current life, um, not just sort of the, 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 the beauty of what I see in nature, but also the bitter of what I experience as a, as a black man. Um, and, and so I try to blend those things in this book so that people understand at any given moment, I might be watching some beautiful bird, but in the next moment, I'm thinking about whether or not I'm going to make it home safely. So, all that in this field guide, hopefully gives you an idea of these prisms that I see the world through.
0: Well, I, I look forward to picking up a copy. I think I'll actually read this one in hard copy. Cause it sounds like uh, it's maybe <laughs> um, more lended to that. Um, you talk about your experience in the field and and in the book um, in the home place, you cover some of this as well, feeling threatened or, or afraid while birding and, um, How has that experience changed throughout your your time as a birder, as an ecologist? Do you feel that it has become more comfortable, more welcoming, um, or does it really just depend on where you are?
1: Well, we're back to maps.
0: You know, I I talk about
1: range maps, I'm writing about range maps a lot in my next book, Um, but I, you know, I've, I've sort of made a decision, Dylan. Yeah, it depends on where you are. Uh, it depends on the map. But then it hit me one day um, when I was, when I saw a Confederate flag somewhere and some other flags that indicated that people might not think a whole lot of me who might hate me. I saw them and at first sort of the same old feelings of, well, I need to stay away from that place or or even even fear. Suddenly I decided, I said, you know, I'm not going to let others determine my range. And I'm going to be smart about where I go. Obviously, I'm not going to walk into a lion's den. But at the same time that each time I set, my eyes on some place or something that i want to do and i don't let somebody else limit me that is what i call micro protest and and so um it may not and it may not be as powerful as boycotts or marching in the streets peacefully um but it, it is my way of expanding my range so i i think um we've been shown in the country in the past few years, that not as much has changed as we thought had changed. Um, but I leave it up to the individual to um, to establish their own sorts of ranges and to challenge yourself. As I challenged myself early on with the expectation to move beyond it, that was a range change. I have to expand my notion of where somebody else wants me to be versus where I want to be. And I'm doing my parents a disservice, my ancestors, my grandmother, all those people before me, including those people who were in bondage, who had no choice to go where they wanted to go or do what they wanted to do. If I am letting someone intimidate me into being limited, then, then I'm, I'm doing all of those people who set this in motion for me to be free um, and to be who I am, to write this book, I'm doing them a disservice. So I'm trying to expand my range beyond those limits of others' expectations again.
0: Good, yeah, you should, you should. Um, tell me about some of the places that birding has brought you in your career.
1: Well, um, so last count, I've seen. Let's see. The only states I'm missing are Hawaii, um, North Dakota, which has some really great sparrows um, and prairie that I want to see. I also want to hunt in in the Dakotas. Um, yeah. Let's so so Hawaii, North Dakota, um, Idaho, and um, yeah so 47 47 states i've i've been able to to see and 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 bird there and 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 sort of be a nature there um, the north cape of south africa and then up into the kalahari was uh, an unforgettable experience the peruvian amazon um, I, if, if the peruvian amazon will teach you quickly that nature um, rules <laughs> it it will cut you down to size um and and potentially you know something else's palatable bites if you aren't careful. Um, pan, uh, let's see, Costa Rica, Cuba, um, you know, so so a little bit of Central America, uh, Alaska. A couple of times I mentioned the states I know, but but Alaska is another world and so expansive and. And I'm looking forward to going back there. Hopefully, um, in the next year or so, um, I, you know, one of one of my favorite places. And I noticed um, on one of your previous podcasts, you had um, the CEO of of the American Prairie Reserve, and uh, and that place is absolutely spectacular. Um, to be able to 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 be in a place with with large herds of free roaming bison. Um, and that sea of grass prairie is something someplace special for me. Wisconsin, uh, is, is highly underrated from a bird perspective. One of the most diverse landscapes I've ever been in one of the most beautiful, wow. um, landscapes. I, I know why, why Aldo fell in, in love with it. It's, it's absolutely spectacular. And I used to do bird tours there with my friend, David LaPuma. Um, but then, you know, home here in South Carolina, um, it's, we're such a, we're a small state, but, um, you can be from the mountains to the sea and, in a little over four hours and, and see all of that diversity in between. Um, I love to, to show people, um, you know, the, the amazing diversity here to show them, you know, ravens and peregrine falcons, and maybe hear a ruffed grouse in the morning. And by lunchtime, have them in the Midlands looking at, endangered red cockaded woodpeckers and hearing backman sparrows. And by, by, by the time we get from barbecue at lunch to shrimp and grits at night. And by the way, we would have had grits for breakfast too. Um, <laughs> but we're going to have shrimp and grits at night. We can be down in the ACE basin um, looking at swallowtail kites above us, um, maybe um, somewhere hearing black rails, but then we can have our feet um on the same river shoreline, the Cumbie River where Harriet Tubman liberated 700 plus enslaved peoples. And to hear those birds and to see that river flowing by and to know that the tide is rising and falling on the pluff mud that enslaved people moved millions of metric tons for to grow rice and that Harriet Tubman in sort of one fell swoop liberated so many of them that makes the birds that makes nature even sweeter there so you know those are the kinds of places it's taken me to some to some awfully exotic places and more that I hope to see um but I always come back home to to South Carolina um to South CAC as some people call it to um so home is the experiment. Home is the baseline. Travel is the experiment, rather. Home is the baseline, and we compare the experiment against the control. And and I love doing that um, because there's a lot to to love here in in South Carolina. There's a lot that needs to change as well here and across the country and world. But I like being able to come home. And the pandemic has has taught many of us that 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 home is a worthy place for our hearts to be. And so um, I'm trying to practice um, as much of that as I can while still flapping my wings and and flying hither and yon um,
0: every now and again. Beautiful. Um, I've just got a couple more questions. If you've got a few more minutes, is that okay? Sure. Okay, we'll we'll wrap up here. Um, The last thing I wanted to talk with you about is hunting. I I'm not a birder. Uh, I knew a few birds, but my the majority of my birding experience is impromptu when I'm sitting in the woods, not seeing deer, um, and the birds are waking up, and uh, you end up just watching some woodpecker for 20 minutes. Um, tell me about kind of your hunting experience and your birding experience and how how those overlap, or maybe they don't. Maybe you separate them.
1: Oh, no, they totally overlap. I, You know, my middle name is overlap. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it's, it, it's, it's important for me as a hunter for people to understand. I make no bones about it. I'm not hunting um, for food to survive. Um, I'm hunting for soul food to thrive. And, and so it, it helps me understand my place being in that deer stand, um, being 20 feet off the ground. Um, watching the woods wake up, you know, hearing things walk around you, um, that, that to me, and, and it's, if you think about it, it's, it's something that's counter to what our limbic brain is telling us to do, to get out of a warm bed, to go and walk through dark woods, to perhaps stumble into something that you shouldn't, um, but then there's a certain comfort to me once I get up that tree, you know, that challenge of overcoming the dark, of overcoming the unknown and what you can't see. And then once I get up that tree, there's this peace uh, that I'm sure you've experienced, Dylan, that, that, you know, whether you're in a ground blind or whether you're up that tree in a, in a climber or whatever kind of stand you're in once you're there that you exhale and everything sort of comes into focus, even when you can't see and you may be cold, you may be uncomfortable at times, but you keep doing it. And so for me, that is the, the spiritual part of it, um, to have this, um, alone, that I don't get that much of, um, to get that time alone to think, but not to think, to just be in the moment, maybe one thing, right. And, and that's a watcher to, to, to be able to do that is that's a privilege. And so, you know, as a, as a deer hunter, I, I, I try to make sure that I'm practiced that, um, that I kill ethically, um, that, that, I I don't and, and you'll never hear me call hunting a sport, um, because I'm not taking score, right? Uh, it's not it's not a competition. It, it it's 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 really for hunters for those of us hunting. What we're doing is guessing, right? And and we're trying to guess based upon this data that we've taken tracks and other sign, habits. We're trying to guess where an animal might or a deer might appear and and then we have a decision to make we have a decision to make whether to to to, to flex that that trigger finger or release that, that that string or to not and and those decisions that decision of life and death um will will, will it, to me it's the measure of and part of who you are. And, you know, I find myself these days, I, I haven't done the, the math exactly, but my guess is that I'm probably about a 3% hunter. That's my success rate. Uh, that's not enough
0: right deer wise.
1: That's not enough to, uh, you know, and, um, but we keep going because we get fed this soul food without ever seeing a drop of blood, you, you know, it's, um, again, b- but when you think about it, if your objective, if you're, I mean, my, my objective as a non subsistence hunter, but one who depends upon hunting to keep my spirit alive, you know, that, that experience is critical. And it's 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 not critical that I see deer necessarily, but it's critical that I get out there, and 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 that I have in my mind and in my heart this acceptance of what I may or may not see.
0: Yeah, I I've had a very similar experience with uh, one of the one of my favorite parts about the book, and I won't give it away, but your um your first Daisy BB gun and what you chose to do with it. I think at every point in every young man's life, there's a point where he releases a slingshot or shoots a BB at something he shouldn't, and um it goes to show that those hunting ethics are not necessarily. I don't know, maybe they are innate, but I think often they're learned the hard way or they're taught uh, generationally, and um you know you talk about sitting in the woods or, or just the experience, my, my hunting percentages are probably worse than yours. I, I'm always out on public land. I'm always probably moving more than I should. I'm getting distracted by, you know, uh, last weekend I went out turkey hunting and ended up just looking for shed antlers and bear tracks and whatever else I could find. What Allison Fox of American Prairie called land snorkeling. Um, and so Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. Yes, I want to come home with meat, but being out there, getting tired, challenging myself, and paying attention to the natural world is really the goal because I think that's the example that Leopold set forth is the care and the admiration for the natural world really came through. And if you're not paying attention, if you're not exhibiting care – for your surroundings, then, you know, what are you doing on the landscape? Uh, But yeah, I think uh, I'm so glad to get your thoughts. I've I've taken enough of your time, but I really, I really appreciate you meeting with me. I know that uh, a lot of people are wanting to hear from you right now. um, Rightfully so. And uh, I really look forward to your next book, which you said you're working on one, right?
1: Yeah, thank thank you, Dylan for thank you for asking. Really, it it um it means a lot to to have the questions that you've asked asked of me. It's important that we talk about ethic and, but it's also important that we just have these conversations. Yeah, I'm I'm working on another book, um, my next big book that hopefully. Um, is, is out sometime in 2022, which seems like it's getting obviously closer and closer, but for a writer on, on deadline, um, you know, it, it moves faster. So it'll be, it's called uh, range maps, uh, birds, blackness and loving nature between the two. Um, and it's Ferrar Strauss and, uh, grew and that, that book hopefully again is out sometime in 2022. But also just working on smaller projects, several essays, um, another book of poetry um, I'm, I'm working up right now. Just, uh, you know, working, working, Dylan, on a symphony orchestra with a composer. Um, cool. <laughs> just just some really fun stuff that I never, um, never had an idea that I would be able to do so. Uh, I'm, I am living all sorts of dreams and, and even though my attempts at flight, uh, by cardboard wings and, and umbrellas failed, I'm flying pretty high most days. So I'm good with,
0: with that. People, that is the kind of beautiful language that you will experience in, uh, Dr. Lanham's books, pick them up. I look forward to reading Sparrow Envy next. Um, Drew, if you're ever out in Colorado, look me up. I'd love to go birding with you, or hunting, or or anything of the sort.
1: We'll do, Dylan. And you take care and keep up the great work. You're doing a great service by by letting others hear um, these these uh, these words of, of land ethic and care um, and love, really, because that's what it comes down to. Yeah. It comes down to those four letters: L O V E. And if we can do that for one another into the land, we'll be okay.
0: Agreed. Thanks, Drew. Look forward to talking with you in the future, hopefully. Take care. Take care, man. All right. Bye-bye.